the UK Psych Health and Safety and ISO 45003 podcast. The goal of the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast is to be your source of information on psychological injury prevention, health promotion and best practice. In doing this, we aim to rapidly advance the global practice of psychological health and safety in workplaces and adoption of best practices from the ISO 45003 standard. We will be looking at fully integrated approaches to managing psych health and safety and well-being strategy in the workplace that meet the needs of everyone in the organisation. Your regular host will be Peter Kelly, Senior Psychologist with the UK Health and Safety Executive and Sheila Lord of BMR Health and Wellbeing. Every week we will have a guest episode from the fields of health and safety, human resources, psychology and academia who are leading the way in their corner of the globe. Hi and welcome to another episode of the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Sheila, uh, your regular host for the show and with me as usual is Peter Kelly from the UK HSE and today I've got a guest co-host with me uh, which is uh, my business partner uh, and friend, partner in crime, partner in life, not really, uh, and those think so, um, um, and Robinson. Um, and joining us today is uh, a good friend of, of Anne and her husband, Carl, uh, Richie Barker. Uh, now, Richie's uh, an English former professional footballer and he's currently the assistant manager at the EFL League One club, Rotherham United. Uh, and as I said before, he's previously worked with um, Anne's husband, Carl, uh, when they were both together at the MK Doms Football Club. Now, which is here today for um, a special podcast that we're, we're doing around uh, in, in uh, for World Suicide Prevention Day, uh, something that sadly had a very huge impact um, in Richie's life. And I want to just kind of hand over to Richie now, really, to introduce himself and to talk about why this is such uh, an important topic for him. OK, so hi, Richie, and welcome Hello. to the podcast. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me on. Um, and obviously, when when Anne approached me and, and asked me to come on, um, it was something that was very special to me in terms of prevention. Uh, because if you were to have this conversation with me two years ago, I'd have probably said, uh, it's, it's not for me. It doesn't really affect me. It won't have an effect on me. And um I, I just don't really need to have a conversation about it. However, um, New Year's Day 2020, uh, I don't mind admitting probably really my life changed forever by the fact that learning that my brother had taken his own life, my younger brother, and um, on New Year's Day. Um, and uh, I'd been with him a few days previously on Christmas Day. I'd spoken to him a couple of days after that, so a few days just before New Year's Day, and um, he told me about loads of plans and that he bought a new car and all this sort of stuff. And then um, having not been able to get hold of him for a couple of days, um, we eventually found out what had happened. And um, so, so he, like I say, if you'd have said this to me two years ago, I, I, it, I just felt like it wasn't something for me. But I think what I'd like to highlight and and obviously by Anne asking me to come on, it was important for me to be able to sort of spread the word a little bit, but try and get people to go and ask for help because how it's just, it's just impossible to spot is probably, you know, the biggest and most important thing for me. Um, you know, my brother was an ex-professional footballer like myself, was a professional footballer, I think for 17, 18 years, was still working in the game as a coach like myself. Um, really uh, laid back, really, you know, people used to say to me, God, you know, I've met your brother, he'll never die of stress, will he? You know, he was just really laid back and happy-go-lucky. And it turns out that, um, as I'm sure that there's loads of people who are probably listening, that everything wasn't as quiet as it seems. And um, unfortunately for me and my family, things will never be the same again. So, I mean, it's 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 a really, really, you know, you said there, Richie, that there was like, there was no signs, nothing at all. No. 
I mean, in terms of, of the industries, obviously football is a very male-dominated industry. Um, and I don't think we ever really know the reasons behind why somebody ultimately faces the decision that they do um, at that stage in their lives. Um, but football, I think, especially as well, is 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 quite a tough environment to be in, isn't it? You know, what kind of contributing factors are there right there that you know that you that you potentially feel kind of had an impact on this? Yeah, um, professional football definitely, professional sport quite probably as well. Um, uh, you start talking about things like um, you know rugby and. Um, uh, particularly things with, with head injuries, which have which have risen, it's um, uh, become more aware of recently. But um, I think I think the transition in careers is important. Um, people reaching the end of their career, not really knowing where they're heading. Um, I think things like being able or having to spend a lot of time away from home, a lot of loneliness. Um, difficulty in terms of moving your family about or if you don't move your family about being without your family um, and, and trying to get your family to settle into places that maybe at times they don't want to be you know so um, so it definitely creates family problems uh, unfortunately it obviously has the stresses of you know where's my next contract coming from you know you've lowered down in the divisions and I'm sure these people sat here listening, going, well, you know, all the premiership players earn unbelievable amounts of money, sometimes obscene amounts that people believe they shouldn't be earning. I, I get that. However, that is not the same in League One, League Two, where players often get a one-year contract on not life-changing money and actually very average money and live from one year to the next. And um, I can certainly speak from when I was playing that there was certainly times where you were thinking, well, I've got six months left on my contract here. If I don't get a new one, who's going to pay the bills? So, and then you start thinking about what you're going to do when you finish playing. And uh, I think the transition from professional, any sportsman into sort of everyday life, if you life, if you like, is um, extremely difficult. Absolutely, Rich. You know, I can really resonate with that, you know, and especially, you know, you talk about players, leaving what's the next step of the career but also young players as well you know there's a lot of pressures from all angles isn't there you know things like social media as well and again you know people moving uh different parts of the country even parts of the world where yeah. you know in the the sort of high levels of different cultures um you know, there's lots of contributing factors that can affect people's mental health um, you know, you, you talked about sort of being lonely. Um, you know, I've certainly experienced that, you know, when I moved around the country, you know, for my husband's job. And, you know, when I first met Sheila, you know, thank God I met Sheila, who was a friend of mine and now a business partner. Uh, you know, it was it was massive. You know, I'm a very people's person and family means a lot to me and friends. And, you know, I certainly felt that um, as part of somebody in that industry. Um, and it's always going to happen. You know, you're going to get people moving all around the world, around different parts of the country uh, for certain jobs. And like you say, with the contracts, you know, you don't know what is around the corner. Uh, so there's loads of loads of things that can impact uh, people's mental health. But one thing I know, because we, we've talked on, you know, quite a few times, Rach, is, you know, the impact of social media. I mean, what are your thoughts on social media? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't about when I played. Um, because uh, the way that I've seen it being used. However, um, obviously, you know, it's it's made the world a smaller place. It's made research far easier. It's made news travel, you know, very fast. We we know about something now happening within two, three, four minutes. You know, I'm sure there'll be football fans out there who think it's great that they can find out the score, you know, literally within seconds of the ball going in the net. They can watch the highlights within seconds of the game finishing. However, it's also given everybody a voice. It's given everybody a voice. It's given everybody the ability to communicate with um, whoever they want to, to a certain extent. So if you are on Twitter, I'm not, by the way, I don't, I don't do any of the social media through my choice. Um, however, you know, it gives, it gives the, you know, fan or the supporter or even just somebody who isn't a supporter an opportunity to voice their opinion to a player, a particular player, a manager, a coach, a chairman even, and it gives them a direct line to that particular person. It also gives them an opportunity to express their opinion of what they think of that person 
without actually, in my opinion, taking stock to think, actually, that's a person. It's a person. So, you know, strip away the professional footballer, strip away the manager, strip away the chairman. It is a human being. And we're all aware that when we are, you know, raise our head into professional sport, football and sport as well, in terms of, you know, general sport, that we are openly there to be criticised. We all get that, you know, whether that's from the terraces or from the newspapers and now obviously from social media. But I think the public's problem when it goes beyond your opinion of them as a person, uh, as a player, sorry, and it goes beyond their opinion of that particular person's performance on that day. Right, okay, you didn't play very well. We didn't think you were great. You should be playing in the next game. Fine. It's when it goes beyond that and people start talking about, um, you know, I don't know, harming or, you know, wanting to actually do something to somebody or asking someone to go and do something to themselves or whatever it is. And um, that's when I think really, and I just think that it is not, in my opinion, and I don't know everything about, I'm not a great social media uh, expert, but it has to be governed and it has to be policed in a better way to ensure that not just everybody on the street can, you know, give their opinion to whoever they want to and say whatever they want to. And for me, if you have something to say to someone and it is something that you would not say to their face if you bumped into them on the street, then don't type it. Don't type it. And if you are responsible for something that happens off the back of a tweet or a Facebook or a whatever it is, Instagram, then in my opinion, you should be you should be held liable for that. There are a lot of Richie, Richard or Richie, which you prefer, Richard or Richie? Um, we'll, we'll probably go Richie, I think. I mean, I do like Richard. However, Richie's probably how most people know. Yeah, okay. We'll call you Richie. But please tell me that it, that isn't a, a glass of red wine because we've got water. Diet Coke. <laughs> Diet Coke, love it. That, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of keyboard warriors out there who think they have the divine right to actually slate people. Um, which which they don't, you know. Um, I I have a a Twitter account. I'm a counsellor, so um, and and you know I'm very fortunate. But I know other people have had really bad experiences on Twitter. So uh, yeah, I, I understand that. I'm interested to know though, uh, Richie, in an elite sport environment where you're told to be the best, and being the best means that you that gets you success. Um, a part of being the best is that constant self-appraisal. Can I do it better? Am I going to do it in a different kind of way? Well, I don't know until probably the last five years, maybe the last 10 years, we've actually taught sports people about, well, actually, it's not just about the self-appraisal, it's self-acceptance of also the fact that you can learn from the, from your mistakes and that. And, yeah. I, and I just wonder, from a footballing sense, you can have a really bad bad game, but that can be... It's like in the context of work, you can have a really bad day. If you've got good mates around you who say, yeah, you know, you're stuffed up, but you, you, you know, we, can, we can do better. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of, do you think the, the, the power of the changing room as a positive thing uh, has changed since you were playing football to where you are now? Of, you know, what's the difference since when you were hit, when you were sort of, uh, you know, feet on the ground to now? Um, I think I think the first thing is um, mental health when I played. So I retired in 2009 as a player. So mental health has become easier to talk about, first thing. It was a taboo 20 years ago when I played. If you'd have talked about mental health, it was like, well, what, is he losing it or something? Or, you know, like that. that so it was taboo. Uh, that was the first thing. I think secondly, in terms of uh, society has changed. So... When I played, if you played pretty well, you probably knew. Your mates probably knew and you probably got picked next week. Whereas now, it's easy for the players to go on their phone, look at their Twitter account and look at, actually, if I had 500 people telling me I was amazing today, but only 200 people telling me I wasn't amazing, I'll go with the majority. 500 people thought I was amazing, so actually I must have played pretty well then. So I think it's taken away that we talk about, you know, the sort of self-appraisal of like knowing did I play pretty well? And if I didn't play pretty well, uh, what do I need to do about it? Well, actually, I think now society has led to the through social media now, unfortunately, has led to actually I'll take on board everyone else's opinion of whether I played well or not. And actually, if I don't get in the team the following week, 
I can convince myself that I played pretty well because everyone else said that I did on my Twitter account because I had 500 people telling me I did really well and, you know, my goal were great or whatever it was. So we didn't have that. We didn't have that. You know, there was there was no social media. There may have been the odd phone in on your local radio, but that was pretty much it. And you pretty much found out if you played well by either what your mate said on Monday morning or whether the manager picked you again. And um, I think, unfortunately, I think we may be moved into now where people are looking for or craving some kind of praise and notoriety in terms of, look, you know, it's whoever's got the most Twitter followers, whoever's got the most praise, whoever's got the most likes or whatever it is. And actually, if I go over and I've had some really positive messages, that makes me feel good. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's some evidence that Instagram uh, uses a bit of, a certain, of a certain chronological age. They don't get more than 250 likes. Um, they, they take it down. Listen, I have, I've run an Instagram account for 10 years and I don't think I've got 250 likes in 10 years, let alone on one photograph. Uh, and yet what I've noticed over the last 10 years uh, in my sort of involvement in work and also in sport, because I have responsibility for sport here, is an openness and a willingness to talk. Um, and, and yet at the same time, there's this reluctance to say, if I show this side of me, it's a weakness, yeah? yeah. Uh, and and I'm, it's really because your work-life balance is, is odd, isn't it, in the terms of you go, you train, you play the game, you go, you train. and that, But actually, there's, the, you know, you live, breathe for, for two, is it two days before the team will meet up and go and be in a hotel if they're away match. Yeah, we could be in a hotel for a couple of days, yeah. So there's that high level of intensity with your, with your mates. And I'd be interested to know, when you were, when you were doing foot, playing football, would mental health come up in conversation around the dinner table or the swimming pool in the jacuzzi? or uh, when, no. no, absolutely not. I mean, I, in fairness, I have to say and be open and admit that probably 20 years ago, I never even heard of the word mental health. Um, it was never even mentioned. It was... Um, you, you, you would probably hear of someone that you knew that was retiring from playing and they just, you know, I, it sounds awful and I apologise if it bit, if somebody was really struggling, the rumour would go around, like, he's lost the plot him. Like, have you heard since he packed in playing, he's he's losing it. And and it was like, oh, wow, you know, that was, that was, that was taboo because it was like, come on, pull yourself together. That was it. You know, look, you're a man, you're playing a man's game. Like pull yourself together. That that that's what you were expected to do, and um, you, you know I, I struggled a little bit when I first packed in playing, and I struggled a little bit during times when I was playing. But it was a matter of like, look, you got labelled mentally weak. Look, he's mentally weak. Just you know, and the word gets around. He's mentally weak. Don't sign him, or you know, he's mentally weak. He's finished, and and, and that was it. And then what you couldn't do, you couldn't admit to a weakness because if you admitted to a weakness, all of a sudden, you know, nobody wanted to touch you. And then you got Nolan Starker, who's the number one world tennis player, saying, yeah. I'm not mentally there. And actually having the strength and the confidence to say, I'm not going to play this game because I'm not, I'm not in that I'm, I'm not in that position. Yeah, I, I thought she, she did excellent. And, in, and um, the gymnast as well, obviously, during the uh, Olympics. But I, I think, and I, I listened to an article a couple of weeks ago about the tennis player and saying that like this was an 18-year-old girl who travels around the world playing tennis is probably quite a lonely place to be with a massive expectation who constantly gets thrown into a press conference with, I don't know, 40 or 50 middle-aged men. Well, an 18-year-old is getting quizzed, an 18-year-old girl is getting quizzed, and people can say all they like that, well, she's world number one tennis player, she has to just get on with it. But she doesn't have to just get on with it at all. You know, it's a really lonely place and uh, probably spends a lot of time by herself. Um, a lot of time, you know, thinking about the game that she's just played. And then she has 40 men, 45, you know, middle-aged men trying to trip her up because they want a headline going, yeah, get up out there. So I asked her this question and, you know, this is how she replied to it. That so, shows a lot of strength for her there, doesn't it, Rick, that she's actually said, no, absolutely, I'm going to yeah. not do this. And I think, you know, we are moving in the right direction. Still a long way to go. But just going back to sort of your experience, Rich, with like, you know, you and your family talk about, I know because you're not here at Rotherham and know your family, um, you know, are quite far away. How, how does that impact you? Um, you know, is it, does it come up in conversations or do you think any of these factors we're talking about may have um, 
you know, been tough for Chris, you know, at, at certain times of, of maybe, I don't know, you know, just yeah. sort of. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I, I think uh, spending a lot of time by yourself um, probably had an effect. Uh, he'd retired from playing about two years before. Um, I'd, I'd actually talked about going back and playing again non-league. Uh, he actually said on Christmas Day, um, Tracy, my wife, served him his Christmas dinner and he went, oh, I don't want to eat all that. I'm thinking of playing again. So that tells me that on Christmas Day, he was content- contemplating getting fit to start playing again. But on New Year's Day, or before even New Year's Day, he couldn't see you know, through far enough to be able to say, actually, you know, it's not just not playing, it's just not being here. So, um, so I mean, in terms of what it's left us behind, I, I, I don't admit, mind admitting, uh, it's been the toughest two years of my life in terms of, and I, and I lost my mum and dad fairly young as well. So to lose my little brother as well was, um, you know, obviously in the way that it was, but I, I've, um, I ended up with two bouts of counselling, which was which was vital to me at that particular time. The first one was absolutely vital in that, you know, I didn't really know where I was heading. And then the second one was sort of a year later when you believe that you've sort of um, reached the end of your grieving period, but you haven't. And um, fortunately for me, I was brave enough to put my hand up and say, I'm not sure I've quite reached where I needed to reach. So um, my, my oldest daughter, Abby, is also, you know, taking part in some kind of uh, counselling, as has my wife, Tracy, as well, who were all very close to him and obviously known him a long time. So, um, and obviously the t- my two younger children have, have obviously found it very difficult, as of my niece, which goes without saying, which was, you know, my brother's daughter, who, who now unfortunately has to live the rest of her life with the way she is. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... There's so many terminologies, but when people um, die from suicide, um, the impact is huge. You know, it's like uh, in the context of work, when someone dies at work, it isn't just the person that's dying. It's this, it's the, it's the, it's his workmates, it's his family, it's his, you know, it's his sisters and, and brothers and everything else. And um, and I think. Um, Often people feel a desire to have a legacy or something to 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 remember their 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 brother or sister by, um, and I and I know obviously if you look at a look across football, there have been other footballers that have committed suicide um, shortly after retirement, or some who were actually in there. Uh, and I'm just wondering if it's something that um, the FA um, have got, you know. The, continue to be involved in. I know the the English, um, the league that you're in, the not the Premier League, the, the EFL. The EFL, which are based in Preston, do have uh, uh, some some work around mental health for, 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 for players and for, for staff and them, but also, uh, you know, addressing this issue of suicide. But do you think um, destigmatising that conversation is really important in addressing it? I, I think you too. I think, um, yeah, I think players are becoming um, more open to having conversations. I think they're more open to holding their hand in the air and saying, I am struggling. I think it's less taboo to be the person that openly admits it. I think that they now need, though, um, more places to go to, whether that is a telephone call, um, whether that is to, to go and visit somebody. Um, and, and in terms of the, the um, like I said, we talked about earlier that one of the biggest things is, is the transition from being an actual player to going to everyday world, if you like. I think we have to do more to help that. We have to do more in terms, and, I, and I'm sure it happens in every professional sport. You know, one day you are a cyclist, the next day you aren't. And the people or, you know, a footballer or a rugby player or a cricketer, cricketers, I mean, I'm a big cricket fan and, how these people spend seven months of their year away from home, constantly traveling around the world in hotels, it just amazes me that we don't have a bigger issue. And obviously Ben Stokes recently spoke up and said that he wasn't able to play for England for the time being. But I think all, and, and you know, I'm, I sound like I'm talking more about the professional sport, which we are a little bit, but more has to be done to say, right, what are you, you know, what are you going to do when you are, because so many people are, though I am, you know, Richie the footballer, or I am Dave the cricketer, or I am, you know, Mary the cyclist. What happens when you aren't Mary the cyclist or Dave the cricketer? And you, by the way, that happens within 24 hours. 
one day you are a footballer or a cricketer, the next day you're not. And what happens with that? And so many people have led their life through. I always wanted to be a professional sportsman and whatever sport it was, golf, cricket, football. And then one day I'm just not. And how do you handle that? And who, who is it that's, you know, and, and, and I'm talking about the, how do you handle that? But also the bigger picture of, is it, how are you going to pay your bills? You know, how are you going to, what is your job? What is your qualifications? What is your desire to go to work the next day? Because it's not as easy as people think. Yeah, I mean, I look, I'm a psychologist. I've done this for 20 years. I'm an expert on mental health. But I suffer from anxiety. And uh, um, I've certainly suffered from depression over the last few weeks since the death of my father. He went through cancer and died three weeks ago. But I'm genuine and honest with people about it. And I think that's the one of the important things is being real with people and saying, actually, you can have all the skills, you can be professional, you can do that, but you can still have that moment where it just becomes overwhelming and you reach out to the people that are around you, uh, you know, people that are really good people that, that in a certain way, I felt very supportive the last few weeks, you know. Um, but during the lockdown, as Sheila will tell you, you know, we... I would phone her up and uh, we spent two hours on the phone because I was desperate for company. And I think people have been like that. A lot of people are thinking, I don't want to be on my own or actually I'm going to be left here. And, 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 uh, you know, I'm trained in suicide risk assessment, um, which, you know, in terms of understanding of when people, but at the same time, it's this very lived real experience and, uh, and, and I know, we, you know, in terms of if you were to look across your industry, you've suggested some of the things you, you, you'd want to do to, to, to perhaps reduce it. But do you think there's a possibility to prevent it? And what would that look like for you when you look across now? And, and from a very personal way of what you've gone through, what would you want the industry to do for you as the family and for you as as the as the as the ex player, um, well, I think if we started with you know the, the actual ex player in terms of what what before we get to you know what's actually happened to me or what's happened to my brother and me and my family over recent times, I think I think we have to um, give better careers advice. We have to um, we have to make qualifications more accessible. We have to encourage it. In terms of instead of just saying, look, you know, if you want to take a course, we'll help finance it. Of which, by the way, I'm sure these people are saying, look, professional footballers get paid loads of money. Uh, again, as I talk about, the lower down you go, actually you don't. And going and taking a degree and paying, you know, nine thousand pound a year or whatever it is for your course fees, which I appreciate that, you know, if one of if my one of my kids has to go, I have to pay. I get it. Um, however, you know, when you are living one year by next, and you're thinking, well, I'd love to take a degree. But, you know, it's either that or pay the bills or, you know, the PFA, the, the football world is awash with money. But unfortunately, we still have, you know, hundreds of professional footballers every year who get to the end of their career. And by the way, sometimes that's not through their choice. That can be a career ending injury that at 22, 23, 24, where these lads were, you know, it's all they've wanted to do. And then they sit in front of a surgeon one day and the surgeon says, look, mate, you aren't playing again. Like, that's even worse because you have never quite lived their dreams. But... You know, some of these lads then come out and go, look, that's all I've known since I was 10. So actually, I haven't really got many qualifications. How can you help me with qualifications or careers advice in terms of, you know, I don't know. There's a career out there for me, maybe, that I don't even know exists. But, you know, let's get some career advice into these people. Let's get them uh, qualified in terms of encourage them and help them go to college and whether that's getting college, you know, tutors to go and visit the clubs or not. I'm not so sure, but. Um, the whole football world is awash with money, as is professional sport to a certain extent. So let's do whatever we can to ensure that these people that entertain us on a Saturday afternoon have a little bit more of a stable life when that finishes. I think yeah. it's a conversation that, that Anne and I have had in the past when, you know, when you're talking and you picked up on the around, you know, some of these kids and some of these people that are coming into professional football, as I say, some majority have been in the football system, if you will, from a very, very, very young age. So they've lived, breathed and been consumed by this. And as you say, Richie, to be suddenly cast aside. So, you know, Anne and I have discussed this in the past about how, you know, is the education through the academy, pathways throughout the academy? You know, we work and we talk with other people that, that look at offering career pathways to help 
academy players that have been released get into, you know, different work environments that have that support. And, you know, I think one of the things that Anne and I have discussed that's, that's potentially missing from the industry is that consistency in almost kind of being a curriculum piece through the football academy on how you manage these transitions and what other career options um, are open to you. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I, I totally agree. Unfortunately, you know, the academies now are taking children on at five and six years of age, which means that they are sold the dream that you're going to be a professional footballer at five or six. Unfortunately, that means then that they have to then be taken out of school a little bit through the sort of 12, 13, 14, really informative, important years through GCSEs. Then they leave school at 16. Um, and there's a statistic out there that, uh, so the apprentices who are 16 to 18 years of age, pretty much give or take every football club in the country has got one. So these 92 youth systems and each club probably take on 10 apprentices a year. So you're talking about, you know, 920 kids leave school every year to try and be a professional footballer. There's a statistic that says by the age of 21, nine out of those 10 boys, not only are they not playing football anymore, they are not involved in football at all. So they don't play, they don't coach, they don't referee they don't support, they don't turn up. So if 90% of the, the, the lads that we take in every year aren't involved by the age of 21, there's a suggestion to me that says, well, we need to prepare them better then. We need yeah. to prepare them better. So so why, when they become professional footballers at 18, and we've had this discussion at our club, unfortunately, we probably don't have the resources to do it. But So they stop education at 18. So when there was apprentices 16 to 18, they go and do their MVQ and their BTEC. Right, great. But then they become pros at 18 and then just, that's it, stop learning. Well, why is it not mandatory up to the age of 21 that you have to continue? Because they've got so much spare time. You know, the, most of them finish training at two o'clock most afternoons and go, right, and they don't earn great money when they're young. They have loads of spare time. They've got loads of energy and they're still moldable. Right, okay, I'm telling you now, until you've played 50 league games, you have to continue educating yourself because there's so many kids drop out at 21. They haven't played one league game. They just hang around football clubs for two or three years. Clubs think that they'll, you know, maybe the next player actually, unfortunately, get to 21. Sorry, you're not for us. Okay, what have I done for the last three years? Well, I haven't got paid a great amount of money. I've had loads of spare time and I'm not educated and I don't really know where I'm going to go with it. So I think more mandatory qualifications and education for, for lads who are young yeah. professional footballers. I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think you just hit the nail on the head there, Rich, you know, talking about education you know, you talk about going back to when you were a player and the word mental health, you didn't really know or understand what it was about. And I think today there's still that lack of education, especially in young people. They see mental health, but they don't actually really understand what it is. You know, that we've all got mental health. It's, you know, whether it's poor or whether it goes into an illness. And, you know, do you think there needs to be more education around that topic area? So, when they do leave, whether they go off into the workplace or whether they go off into the first team, they've got a level of understanding about their own thoughts, feelings and behaviours and what are risk factors. You know, you get to, you know, adolescence, the, you know, going out on relationships, maybe start drinking, you know, away from home, all these things that can contribute to people's poor mental health. So if they understand you know, they know about nutrition, but all the other contributing factors that we know there's people out there that have maybe gone into gambling or yep. addiction. You know, there's so many different avenues that people can go down. But if they're more aware of their own thoughts and feelings and behaviours at a younger age, do you think that would help more if there was more education around that? Yeah, because I think that can be used whether they are successful or not successful. So mental health education could be used for the really successful footballers for the lad who is playing in the youth in the first team at 18 or 19 years of age his mental health is equally as important as the lad who dropped out of the game at the age of 19 and when I mean by mental health we're back to the whole social media thing again so you know my, my son was fortunate enough to play um, in the first team last year at 17 years of age at Charlton and had a really good start to his career and next thing you know he's got 5,000 Instagram followers what happens when you know and he did, unfortunately, score an own goal a couple of weeks later. But those 5,000 Instagram followers could quite easily actually become a major negative again. So so just because you have been released, mental health is important. 
but it's also important for the ones who are, you know, relatively successful at the time. So mental health can go down as far as lack of motivation. What, you know, all of a sudden these lads have been offered a contract, but actually get up in the morning and think, I don't want to train today. That's still mental health. So, you know, what, what are we going to do about the lack of motivation? What are we going to do about anxiety and stress? And the fact that actually they're going to play in front of a crowd that they're not so sure whether they can handle playing in front of the crowd. Maybe their first game on TV, that's mental health. How, how are we going to deal with that? So I think it has to be used from, you know, like I say, a, a wider range in terms of, unfortunately, the lads who don't quite make it. However, the lads who do make it as well, because they're thrust out in front of thousands of people. They're put on TV in front of millions of people at times. And actually, we don't really care in in invert commas, you know, whether they want to, like to, or can handle it or not. I'm just wondering if you, to what degree did you feel um, that you have a responsibility there or your coaches have a responsibility to, 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 to make talking about mental health just quite normal? Yeah, we do. But I think that it starts before that, really, which is actually, um, firstly, I think as, as a group of staff, we have to treat footballers as people first. So treat them as, and and that, and but but everybody should be treated as a person first. That doesn't mean you know that's the same as uh, a police officer that you is walking down the street. He's still a person. He's still a person. That doesn't because they have a police uniform on doesn't give someone the right to, you know, abuse them or you know, sh- shout things or you know, um, verbally abuse because it's a person. And it doesn't give you the right to, you know, find out who they are and tweet them and tell them what you think. It's a person. So I think the most important thing for us as a group of staff really is before they are treated as footballers is to treat them as people Uh, and then make our, firstly to us, we have to make ourselves accessible. So, you know, if you have a problem, come and knock on the door. We are here to help you first because actually from the slightly selfish assistant manager, manager, coaching point of view, if their mental health isn't right, there is no point us picking them on a Saturday anyway. So, you know, it's all right us going, you know, well, it's a results-orientated business and we have to play him because he helps us win football matches. If his mental health's not right, he isn't going to help us win football matches. So, actually, treat him as human beings, treat him as people, make yourself more accessible, ask them how they are, ask them how the family are, make them feel welcome, and you're more likely to get higher performance out of them. And then that's the same, isn't it, Pete, across any industry? You know, we've yeah, yeah. on here from, from, from all walks of life. And I know this is something that, that Pete's really passionate about. You know, people are human beings. Stop leaving the human factor at the door. Yeah. Because you're a footballer doesn't mean you're any less of a human being. Um, and it's Some of the most powerful traits of humanity is also yeah. being compassion. And we do it with our kids. We do it with our family. And you, and, but why do we not do it in on a football pitch, a rugby pitch, or on a or on a fan? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think um, you know, um, I won't. Fifty four. Got to work till sixty seven. But I won't stop my message, which is look after your people, and they'll look after you. It's a really quite a simple message, but uh, at the same time, that means about not just simply doing nice things it's about having conversations with them isn't it like you know you like you said Richie there when you need to know what's happening in your 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 player's life what's going on mentally physically to get to the next level but again I think we've got across the industry and Richie correct me if I'm wrong here you know as you said you, you said before you know we've got 92 clubs in the EFL some will be more profitable than others so some can afford to do some of these more detailed initiatives some can afford to put more educational programs on more support etc um and then others won't be able to um so is it does it just come down to the kind of the profitability of those clubs is this something that we should be taking back to, you know a step further is this something that should really sit as an educational piece under uh, and a preventative piece through the efl the pfa you know there's would you say the industry is awash with money you know, yep. a lot of bucket shaking, there's a lot of T-shirt wearing, there's a lot of, you know, awareness that football does. Um, and, you know, but are we looking at the risk to players? Are we safeguarding them in terms of, you know, addressing the 
the potential impact of the exposure to social media, as you said before, the transition from working as a, you know, in your dream job to it, all of your dreams being taken away from you and you left floating in the wind, you know. Yeah. And, and again, you know, we're never going to be able to protect all people all of the time, but what is actually being done as a protective piece and an educational piece to prepare people for this life? Yeah, know? I, I think you're right in terms of, uh, you know, if we left it individually to clubs, um, their first answer probably at the moment, most clubs, particularly outside the Premier League, will it's a really tough time at the moment. The industry struggled like every other industry has through COVID with, you know, no supporters coming through the door, the season getting curtailed quite early, um, eight, 18 months ago. Uh, so they will come down and say, look, you know, it's just another cost. Um, firstly, I would say, you know, you could argue that's an understandably so. However, we're talking about people's mental well-being and, and lives and, and actually, you know, ability to get through some really tough times. So, could you argue then that it's like you say, it's done by um, one of the major stakeholders, the FA, the Premier League, the Football League, the PFA, where they're, each particular region is, is given, um, you know, a mental health specialist, a mental health uh, educator, um, maybe even um, uh, a, a, a counsellor, you know, for a particular group of five clubs and that person's available for each club on one particular day, but can also be rang up. Uh, and I think that again, listen. The top players earn their money, and I, I I think that they are you know brilliant at what they do. However, you know we're probably talking about small amounts of money compared to the TV deals of billions of pounds for us to employ six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't know counselors and mental health experts that could prevent some of the stuff that we're talking about, which I believe is only going to get worse if we don't do something about it. Absolutely. Um, and we it's so fragmented at the moment, isn't it? It's like one club's doing one thing. It's like yeah. United, you know, Carl's got a psychotherapist. They're doing a lot of health education sort of around that. But I speak to other clubs that are just, you know, they're not doing anything. And it, it's quite shocking, really. Um, but at the heart of it, they can be human to each other, can't they? And that's the thing that I've... Um, we can train everyone and we will train everyone, but you, um, the fact is that to normalise mental illness is to say it's okay. Uh, people say, well, you define mental people who are suffering from a, a mental health and a mental illness. I said, these are people that are having an abnormal, who are having a normal response to an abnormal situation because actually, you know, we don't know, you know, as you said, Richie, two years ago, this wasn't necessarily on your radar, but in the last two years it has because circumstances have transpired. And from that, you've learned about the need to support people with mental health. I, I, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure you agree with me. Unfortunately, it shouldn't have to wait until someone experiences what you do. This should be something we are doing. This should be where we're having conversations. You know, the Duke of Cambridge uh, and, their, and their foundation, you know, talking about mental health, normalising the fact that this is something that we all go through and uh, and being really, allowing people to be open and honest with people. Um, I did a webinar last week on uh, physician burnout. It's a global summit. And I was talking to a number of physicians there and I said, what we need to be is to realise sometimes the system isn't working right and it's not about the individual it's about the system and uh, we have to change the system don't we we have to change the system from within great ideas and 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 really cost efficient when you think how much it's going to cost to support people when uh when you haven't done the prevention um which is yeah i you know uh, uh, and um uh, I just think, you know, these are the type of conversations that need to be done for the professional football union. Um, I remember uh, the the chair, of, was it um, a little fella, Dennis, played for Wolverhampton Wanderers, didn't he? Or, um, if, he said he played for all the teams at W. But we were talking about this um, after, uh, uh, on the train, actually, on the way home, we were talking about players' mental health. And he said, when it, you know, obviously in his days, uh, Dennis Taylor, 
That's right. And he said in his days, it was a different thing. And I remember Chopper, other people where they, they, you look at people like Chopper Harris and others who, who wrote document, uh, wrote books about their playing, they've all come back to this central theme, which is we didn't really talk, we didn't sort of engage, but um, yeah, so I, sorry, I'm, I'm just deeply passionate about normalising this whole thing. This is a, a normal conversation. It's, uh, you know, um, what does it cost? to be five minutes with someone on the on a, on a playing field or in an office to listen to what's what's going on you know um and um uh, yeah unfortunately we know uh, last year pre-pandemic 6800 people um died by suicide there is evidence to show in the uh, over the last uh, 18 months that we've seen a marked increase globally in suicides, um, we are we really are at the the the, the centre of a of a major mental health thing, and I think uh, it's wonderful that that you're able to speak openly about it because these are the conversations people need to have about it. Um, just, just, a, just a question, Richie. You know, going back to sort of the clubs and stuff. You know, you're saying you check in with people. You know, how you doing today? I mean, do you still think that there's people that won't say that they're struggling because they are still worried about maybe not getting chosen to play? Yeah, I think so. I think um, uh, you, particularly players who are maybe coming towards the end of the contract who are worried about, oh God, if this gets out, that you know, I went to see the manager or the coach or the physio or whatever it is to say, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm really struggling. You know, I'm really struggling with a, a, an issue within myself. I think that, that people are genuinely thinking, well, this is going to get out. This is going to get out to the, my next employers who are then going to go, well, you know what, we can't be taking him. What happens if, uh, you know, he just can't handle, you know, the next step of his career or moving away or, you know, travelling away from his family, you know, just what happens. And I think, unfortunately, it's uh, it's just one of those things where people eventually hold it hold it in, keep it to themselves. And maybe that's why that when they get to the end of it, it's like something that's built up, built up, built up. And actually in the end, it just explodes because they've had 10, 11, 12, 13 years of sort of keeping it within themselves. And then they get to the end of the career and it just goes bang, you know, I can't hold it in any longer. And I don't have to hold it any longer because I'm not worried about what the next employee is going to say, you know, next employer, sorry, is going to say, because actually my career is finished. So bang, it all comes out and it's been building up for so long. So, Richie, we're kind of coming towards the end of, of kind of this podcast session. Um, I just have a couple of questions for you. I mean, obviously, um, Chris was really, really struggling. And if you could give a piece of advice to somebody that found themselves in a similar situation, what would that be? Chris wasn't alone in the way he's feeling in this in this. No. We know that from the numbers around suicide. Um, you know, what what would be your advice um, to people, to the people listening to this podcast, to the men that are struggling to speak out and 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 ask for help and support? I, I think, and the obvious one,
Mm. And there's a lot, as you said, there's a lot more anonymous support, if you were like there, because you're right, you know, things like having this on GP records and, you know, the impact that that can have. I mean, Pete, we've had conversations around that. You know, there is stigma, you know, even getting it on your medical records, but there's a lot of anonymous support out there. Yep. For men, there's lots of different clubs. There's Andy's Man Club. There's Dudes and Dogs. There's, you know, the the lighthouse and other construction industry. I, I think it's not been scared. Yeah. It's not been scared to talk about. It. I phoned Sheila up when I had a wobble um, around my dad's funeral time, and I, you know, I just, I just cried and we we had a little chat. But it was me being reaching out to Sheila. She said, "Tell me if you want," and I did. Um, and there was a there was a voice at the end and someone to listen and and, and I think um, the, the power the power of human contact through 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 connection be it face to face or over the phone in those moments is a really really powerful thing um, and some people don't feel they can do that but other times you can if you uh, you know so I yeah I I I, I totally yeah I use it. <laughs> Um, we, just, we just need to normalise, don't we? Like, like yeah, yeah. you know, I've got a bad back, I've got a headache. We just need to completely normalise it so players or people in whatever industry are okay to talk about it and they're not going to feel penalised or pressure from the boss or, you know, not getting into the team because they're struggling because you can recover. You know, you're just having a little bit of an off time just as you would, you know, I know, Sheila, you struggle a little bit physically with your hip and sometimes it affects you in a certain way and it should just be exactly the same with mental health, exactly mm. the same. You know, it shouldn't be like, oh, I can't speak to me, boss, I can't do that for any repercussions. And, you know, I just hope and pray that we can get to that point one day and normalise it. Thank you, Rich, as well. Thanks for your time and good luck with the season. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. And anything else you want to add, Rich, before we sign off for today? I just like I, I for the hardest thing for me, and obviously I spoke about it right at the beginning, is like if it helps one person this, one person who's listening to this picks up the telephone, goes and knocks on the next door neighbor's house, then it was worth it because it's a difficult thing to do, it's a difficult thing to talk about. But like I, I want I don't want what happened to me to be worthless and pointless i want it to have an effect on somebody in a positive way and um i i it's not easy but you know just do everything possible to try and help someone it might not be you by the way it might be someone that you spot so go and help them as well yeah absolutely yeah, um, yeah. thank you rich thanks, thanks a lot. thanks for thanks. having me thank you you've been listening to the uk psych health and safety podcast to stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention and the new ISO 45003 standard, follow subscribe to the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast at www.ukpsychhealthandsafety.com.